Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already gone. When you were a teen, did you love talking on the phone? No, I mean, really love it? No one loved being on the phone more than Rose Marie, Rosie Larner. She made more than a thousand calls each month, regularly creating phone bills of $300 or more. This is back in the late 1980s and early 1990s, when landlines and pagers were the only options for most people. It would be those phone calls, or lack of phone calls, that pointed to the fact that Rosie wasn't just missing. She hadn't simply run off. She was really and truly gone. The phone stopped ringing. Rosie stopped calling. Come with me to December of 1993, when things got quiet and those who loved Rosie knew that something terrible had happened. Rosemarie Larner was the daughter of Rose Markey and Bill Larner, She was born in Marinette, Wisconsin on August 19, 1975. Her parents would split up when she was just four years old. Rosie's mother, Rose Markey, worked long hours and multiple jobs to care for Rosie and her brothers. They settled in Lansing, and that's where Rosie lived for the bulk of her childhood. As a teenager, the family realized that Rosie was different. Sure, she'd always been high energy and what you might call spirited, But she was generous, helpful, and big-hearted. When she reached middle school, she struggled with high energy levels and her sleep schedule was disrupted. She would sleep most of the day, and if she was awake, she was either on the phone, remember those $300 phone bills I mentioned earlier, or she was out roaming the neighborhood at all hours of the night. A visit to the doctor led to an evaluation, and Rosie was diagnosed with hyperactivity. Treatment for the condition didn't slow her down much. The Lansing State Journal reported that Rosie, quote, stopped moving only to sleep, take three showers a day, and talk on the telephone. One of the people she enjoyed talking to and enjoyed prowling the neighborhood with was Ginger Bailey. Rosie and Ginger met in the third grade, back when Rosie was a straight-A student and queen of the school spelling bee. As a child, Rosie spoke of becoming a police officer like her uncle. As a young teen, she was busy with school, attending church twice a week and helping out around the house. Rosie was also known for her mouth. Today, we might say that Rosie had no filter. She said what she was thinking to the person she was thinking it about. And this didn't always sit well with people. Rosie made enemies. For a girl who was a straight-A student in grade school, high school presented a larger challenge for her. In high school, Rosie was still good friends with Ginger, and she loved hanging out with her on the skywalk over Miller Road. 
The two were also frequent customers at the Dairy Mart, where her mother worked part-time. They would stop in to buy frozen Cokes and get ice cream. When Ginger slept over at Rosie's house on the weekends, the girls would sneak out of the house and roam the neighborhood all night long, then sleep all day. Rosie's nickname around the house was The Vampire because of her peculiar sleep schedule. Her dad joked that if someone kidnapped Rosie for ransom, they would pay good money to bring her back. She was fierce and opinionated, big-hearted and generous, a challenging sister and a loyal friend. Rosie's relationship with Billy Brown, probably her best friend after Ginger Bailey, started in elementary school. They had the same homeroom teacher in grade five, and by middle school, she'd circled his yearbook photo with a blue heart. Their relationship, somewhere between besties and romantic partners, was both close and complicated. When Rosie was 15, she took advantage of her mother's absence to host a large party at the family home. During the party, there was an altercation between Rosie and another female partygoer. Rosie threatened the girl with a fork, but her friends talked her out of an assault. When Rosie's mother learned about the incident, the threat of physical injury to another teen, she decided it was time to get serious about help for her daughter. She loaded Rosie into the car and drove her to the Rivendell Behavioral Health Center, an inpatient facility for youth and adolescents in St. John's, Michigan. While waiting to be processed for admission to the facility, Rosie looked at her mother and said, Ma, this is a loony bin. Her mother said she would not force Rosie in for treatment. The decision was up to her. Rosie agreed to be admitted and would spend three months there as an inpatient. While receiving psychiatric treatment at the facility, she made new friends and even had a romantic entanglement with a boy who was also there receiving treatment. His name was Brody, and Rosie used a pencil to scratch the initial B into her leg. Once she was released, she was the same Rosie, challenging, opinionated, and energetic. But she landed a job at a fast food place and was earning her own money, something she was proud of. Upon her return from Rivendell, Rosie continued to get in trouble. Her mom suspected that Rosie was acting out because she wanted to go back to the inpatient facility. There were incidents of fighting, shoplifting, and she was even caught with alcohol at school. Wanting a fresh start, Rosie switched high schools. She moved from Everett High School to Sexton High School, but she soon missed her friends and switched back to Everett. She still saw Billy and Ginger. She and Ginger would go up to their old elementary school, Maple Grove, and play basketball. One afternoon, the girls were hanging out and a man approached them. The three began a conversation and Ginger noticed that Rosie and the man really hit it off, so she decided to head home. Hours later, Rosie showed up at Ginger's house. She was shaking and crying. A concerned Ginger asked what was wrong and Rosie confided that the man had raped her. Police were called, along with Rosie's mom. A report was filed and the man taken into custody. Rosie's mom would later say that she seemed embarrassed by what had happened to her and didn't want to talk about it. Her rapist would take a plea and serve only 30 days for the rape. This is completely outrageous for sexual assault of a child. Listeners, it's 30 years later and we still aren't taking these cases as seriously as we should. In December of 1991, 16-year-old Rosie dropped out of high school. She would enroll briefly at the Harry Hill Center for Academics and Technology, 
but lasted only a couple of weeks before abandoning the program. She still had dreams of becoming a police officer like her uncle, so she looked into enlisting in the U.S. Army. Sadly, her stint at Rivendell would prevent the military from accepting her as a recruit. Rosie wept when she learned that she couldn't enlist in the Army. Still wanting to pursue her dream of working in law enforcement, Rosie enrolled in a vocational training program in Grand Rapids where she finished her high school education. The 17-year-old lived in a dorm with other girls for a few months. She would get her GED in June of 1993. This is about the same time she would have finished high school had she stayed with it. In August of 93, Rosie turned 18. She was trying out life as an adult, and while she was still close with her friends Billy Brown and Ginger Bailey, Rosie was meeting new people, including a local rap artist two years her senior, John Ortiz Kehoe. Her parents are relieved to see that Rosie reached this milestone. She's an adult, she's earned her education, and the future lies bright before her. What they don't know is that their daughter, their fierce, energetic, and loving girl, only has a few months left to live. We'll be right back. In the summer of 1993, Rosie Larner was 18 years old. She was working and experiencing life as an adult. In addition to her friendships with Billy Brown and Ginger Bailey, she was meeting new people and expanding her horizons. One of the people she met was a guy named John Kehoe. Kehoe was friends with the brother of Rosie's friend, Billy Brown. Kehoe, a local rap artist who fancied himself a musical talent, had plans to be a big star. And while Kehoe liked Rosie, she was crazy about him. She thought he was handsome and talented. She loved his music and wanted to rap with him. She wanted to create music with him. Wherever Kehoe was, that's where Rosie wanted to be. Rosie's brother, who's also named Bill, he said that Rosie and Kehoe spent a lot of time at the Brown household, spending time with Billy and his brothers. Rosie's brother said he cautioned her about Kehoe, warned her off the relationship that some might have described as an obsession on her part. But Rosie shrugged it off. She had her sights set on Kehoe and was having too much fun to listen to the voice of reason. By October of 1993, Rosie and Kehoe had been seeing each other for a few weeks. Kehoe found himself in a jam. The 20-year-old needed a place to live and asked Rosie if he could stay with her. Rosie went to her mother, who reluctantly agreed. So Kehoe moved into the Larner home and made himself comfortable. So comfortable, in fact, that he was dealing drugs and possibly guns from the home. When Rosie's mother found out about this, she hit the roof. She told Kehoe in no uncertain terms that he had to leave. Now. Speaking about Kehoe, Rosie's mother later told the Lansing Journal that, quote, He was nice. Then I found out he had guns in my house and he had lots of money. Wads of money laying on the table. It was time for Kehoe to use that money and pay for his own place. Kehoe left the household without incident, but he also left without Rosie. After Rose Markey kicked him out of her home, Kehoe pulled away from Rosie. She was devastated, and she pursued him relentlessly. Kehoe was done with her, and word is he told Rosie that he would kill her if she didn't leave him alone. Even her friend Billy Brown, and remember, the Browns were the ones who introduced Rosie to Kehoe, Billy told her that she needed to let things go with John Kehoe. 
he told her it was time for Rosie to move on. In November of 1993, Rosie is at a party on the Michigan State University campus. Kehoe was there with his brother. Rosie and Kehoe quarreled, and the fight ended when she took her mother's van and rammed it into Kehoe's brother's pickup truck. The brothers were furious. Billy Brown, who was also at the party, took the wheel of the van and drove Rosie back home to make sure she made it there safely. A few days after the fight and ramming incident at the Michigan State University party, Rosie was working her job at the Meyer Pizzeria. Her shift ended at 11.30 p.m., and she returned home with a small gift for her brother, Jamie. While it was nearly midnight, Rosie, whose nickname was The Vampire, was not about to turn in for the evening. She told her brother she loved him and headed out walking up Miller Road to the Quality Dairy Convenience Store where her mother worked. Rosie asked her mother if she could take the van, but Rose said no. The vehicle was low on oil, and she didn't feel comfortable with her driving it that night. Rosie understood and headed out on her own. Rose Markey would work all night at the store, her shift ending at 7 a.m., When she got home in the morning, she checked Rosie's room, but it was empty. She was hoping to see her daughter before she left for her next gig, a painting job at a local office, but the two did not cross paths. Rose Markey will never see Rosie again. That night, Rose came home and there was still no sign of Rosie. She started making calls to Bill Brown, not home, and Ginger Bailey, who hadn't seen or heard from Rosie. Calls to other friends revealed that no one had seen Bill Brown either, so maybe he and Rosie were off somewhere? When Rose Markey spoke with Teresa Brown, Billy Brown's mother, she told her that Billy wasn't with Rosie. Rose called the pizzeria to see when Rose was next scheduled to work, and they said that she'd been scheduled on the 7th but was a no-call no-show, which is out of character for Rosie, who was a reliable worker. It appears that the 18-year-old has vanished. Fortunately, when Rose Markey went to the police to report her child missing, they took the case seriously. It was on December 9th when Rose, along with her son Jamie, went to Lansing Police and filed the report. Rose and her other son, Bill, searched local parks, and that night Rose made a missing poster for Rosie. It was then, looking at her daughter's face on the poster, that she knew in her heart that Rosie was not coming back. But they continued to search for Rosie, Rose called the pizzeria again to see if Rosie came in to get her paycheck, but no, it was still sitting there waiting for her. That news sent Rose to the print shop where she had dozens of copies made of the missing poster. She and her boys spent hours going around town putting up flyers. On December 13th, Rose connected with Lansing Police Detective John Cowdy. Cowdy listened, and when she said that Rosie was not a runaway, that she was missing, and something was terribly wrong, he believed her. One of the big clues that Rosie was not just a runaway was that the normally phone-loving teenager, who spent literally thousands of hours on the phone with friends each month, hadn't called or spoken to anyone since December 7th. Six long days of silence from her normally social and gregarious girl. It just didn't make sense. According to the Lansing State Journal, this conversation between a detective and the victim's mother would lead to one of the lengthiest and most expensive criminal investigations the city had ever seen. Cowdy interviewed both John Kehoe and Billy Brown. On December 20th, Cowdy led the first of many ground searches looking for Rosie's remains. Her story is now in the press and being talked about by her circle of friends, 
so tips started to come into police about the case. But Christmas came and went with no sign of Rosie, no word from her. Her mother was physically ill with worry and grief about her daughter, which made it hard for her to work. Word on the street was that Billy and John knew what happened to Rosie, but aside from that, there was nothing more specific for law enforcement to go on. Then, 1994 arrived, and they were no closer to finding Rosie or learning what happened to her. In the spring, when the snow cleared, there were more searches, but still no answers. In 1995, Detective Cotty retired from the force. He later told the Lansing State Journal, quote, That was one of the hardest things I had to do in my 26-year career. I didn't want to let it go. Rosie's case would be picked up by Lansing detectives Lucius Hayward and John Herzman. In August of 95, around the time of Rosie's 20th birthday, Michigan State Police Detective Donald Brooks received information about the case. He then helped the Lansing police form a task force on the Larner disappearance. They spoke with a man named Sam Ayers. Ayers had a story to tell, and it was pointing Rosie's case in an interesting direction. And listeners, remember Ayers' name? It'll come up later. Before the task force, which included the FBI, Lansing Police, and the Michigan State Police, could act on their new information, 20-year-old Billy Brown, Rosie's longtime friend and sometime love interest, showed up. Billy had some things to get off his chest. Listeners, this case is going to take a wild and very disturbing turn. If you're squeamish, you may not like what's coming. You see, Billy thought the task force was getting close, and he thought it was better to clear his conscience before the police came to him with an arrest warrant. Billy started the meeting off by saying he did not kill Rosie, but he knew who did. And this is the story he told. Late on December 6th, or possibly in the early moments of December 7th, Billy was with John Kehoe, and they were returning to Billy's house in Kehoe's brother's truck. When Kehoe pulled up, Rosie was sitting on the porch. Kehoe dropped Billy off, but Billy asked him to come back, and he returned. Rose was excited to see Kehoe, and the two men agreed they would hang out with Rosie, if she would have sex with them. They left Billy's house in the truck and drove to an isolated spot. Rose had sex first with Kehoe, then with Billy. The trio then drove to a Meyer store near Albion, which is about 40 miles south of Lansing. John Kehoe went into the store by himself and returned with the bag that he stashed in the bed of the truck. When asked about the contents of the bag, Kehoe smiled and said it was for the night's festivities. From the Meyer store, they headed to Kehoe's grandparents' house in Albion. Billy told detectives he thought they were going to party, you know, have sex, get high, stuff like that. Billy admitted that he had both weed and cocaine on him that night. And when they got to the house in Albion, that's just what happened. They smoked, they snorted, and they had sex. Kehoe knew that they would have the house to themselves because his grandparents, John and Pearl Kehoe, they were wintering out west. The threesome, John Kehoe, Billy Brown, and Rosie Larner, got into the shower together. While in the shower, Kehoe revealed a large fillet knife that he'd hidden on a shelf. Billy looked at Kehoe in horror, and the knife was put back. Rosie, who stood just five foot one, didn't see the knife or the exchange between the two men. When they got out of the shower, Rosie was brushing her hair in front of the mirror, and Kehoe stepped out of the bathroom. He returned with a length of electrical cord. 
He draped the cord around Rosie's neck and she swatted at it, half laughing. She said, John, quit playing. But John Kehoe wasn't playing. He wrapped the cord around Rosie's neck and pulled it tight. Kehoe pressed his knee into her back and increased the tension. Billy looked at John and said, what are you doing? John replied, the bitch has got to go and that's what's going to happen. Within minutes, Rosie Larner was dead, strangled by John Kehoe in the bathroom of his grandparents' home. According to Billy, Kehoe pulled her body into the shower and retrieved the fillet knife. He dragged the knife across her throat and watched her bleed, rinsing her blood down the drain. Then Kehoe and Billy did a line of coke in the bathroom. Kehoe said, so, what do you think? And Billy vomited while Kehoe laughed at him. It's 5 a.m. when Kehoe takes Rosie's body out back and starts to dismember her with a hatchet. He used a garden hose to rinse away the blood. At one point, Kehoe held up Rosie's head like a scene from Clash of the Titans. He then carried her limbs and head to the basement where he started a roaring fire in the fireplace and began the long process of burning her up. Now, the hatchet, the fillet knife, the lighter fluid he used to get the fire going... Those are the items that John Kehoe bought at Meyer. That's what he described as for the night's festivities. While Rosie's limbs and head smoldered in the fireplace, the two men began the task of cleaning up the bathroom and any traces of blood from the house. Kehoe decided they should go up north to a property in Meredith. And listeners, I wasn't familiar with Meredith, so I had to look it up. It's in mid-Michigan, east of 127, north of Gladwin, and south of Houghton Lake. Honestly, it's kind of in the middle of nowhere. The two loaded the truck with a trash can containing Rosie's ashes from the basement fireplace, as well as shovels, more gasoline, and Rosie's torso. They traded Kehoe's brother's truck for his mom's car and drove to the Meredith property where they dug a fire pit they lined with logs. Then they placed Rosie's torso on top and poured lighter fluid over it. Her body would burn for hours. John Kehoe planned the murder of Rose Larner, right down to how he would dispose of her remains. The two men watched her body burn over the orange flames. At one point, John Kehoe sliced away some of Rosie's flesh and placed it on a slice of bread. He added a bit of mustard and ate it. Billy told the detective that John did it for the experience, so he would know what it was like. After 10 hours of burning, they felt the body was destroyed enough so that they could leave. They loaded their gear into the car and headed for the home of John's brother, Tim Kehoe. When the two arrived, sooty and dirty and tired, Tim said, hey, where is she? They looked at him and Tim laughed, saying, I don't want to know. Billy revealed that Tim seemed surprised to see gasoline, a hatchet, and shovels in the car. According to a story in the Lansing Journal, Tim said, quote, Don't worry about that stuff. I'll take care of it. Then Billy, John, and Tim sat in Tim's bedroom to work out an alibi for the last two days. Finally, Tim drove them to the bus station and they purchased tickets for Florida. It was Sam Ayers, the man I mentioned previously, who met them at the bus station in Florida. After that, John Kehoe and Billy Brown went their separate ways. They were the only ones who knew what really happened to Rose Larner, and as long as they weren't talking, no one would learn the absolute horror of her murder and what came after. We'll be right back. Hey friends, Nina here. I want to tell you about a podcast I've been binging. What was that like? Each episode features the guest, 
the person who actually experienced this situation, telling the story of what happened firsthand. From Whitney was shot 12 times to Leslie's house exploded, you hear the story from the person who lived through it. The host of What Was That Like, Scott Johnson, he lets the guest tell the story, a firsthand account of the frightening, the disturbing, and the unusual. There's one episode called Terry Witnessed a Murder, where you learn what it's like to be part of the worst day of someone's life and how you live in the aftermath of such an event. Find What Was That Like on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or visit whatwasthatlike.com for a full list of episodes. With Billy Brown confessing his involvement in Rosie's death, things happened quickly. On April 12, 1996, John Kehoe was charged with murder, and Rosie's old friend Billy Brown was charged as an accessory after the fact. Billy turned himself in to law enforcement, but John Kehoe had no intention of making things easy. He fled the state of Michigan and was declared a federal fugitive. Police worked with departments in six states, as well as Mexico and Canada, trying to locate him. On April 15th, investigators, including members of the crime lab, descended on the home of John Kehoe's grandparents, and in the hallway, on the wall, they found a speck of blood. It belonged to Rose Larner. In the sump pump, they recovered a few fingernail-sized bone fragments, likely from the blood-soaked rags that were rinsed out and washed in the home. At the Meredith property, more bone fragments were recovered. Honestly, there was not much left of Rose Larner. While the evidence is processed and the case assembled, John Kehoe is on the run, headed south to Mexico where he slipped over the border. Billy Brown, awaiting trial for his role in Rosie's death, was facing his own set of dangers. On April 24th, one of John Kehoe's friends was taken into custody by police. 23-year-old Robert Michael Wood was part of a plot to firebomb the Brown household to get rid of Billy Brown and therefore prevent him from testifying against John Kehoe. In Wood's house, they found items that could be used to make a Molotov cocktail. Robert was charged with possession of bomb-making devices. He later pled guilty to attempted possession of a Molotov cocktail, being a felon in possession of a handgun, and concealing stolen property. He was sentenced to five years in prison. Meanwhile, John Kehoe is still on the run. In May of 1996, Rose Markey drove to Albion. She wanted to see where her fierce and loving daughter spent her last hours. When she arrived, she was greeted by John Kehoe's grandfather. He embraced her and apologized to her and welcomed her into his home. They both recognized the tragedy, the cruelty, and the pain of their situations. John Kehoe would not be found until August of 1996 when his brother Tim was tracked from Battle Creek, Michigan to Nuevo Laredo, Mexico. John was taken into custody without incident, and Tim was arrested and charged with being an accessory after the fact. Meanwhile, Rose Markey, who had known Billy Brown since he was a child, she wanted to forgive him for his role in the brutal death of her daughter. Now that Rosie had a final resting place, well, she had a headstone. There was so little left of Rosie that there was nothing to bury. Rose Markey called Billy and asked if he would go with her to see Rosie. He agreed, and the two went to the cemetery along with Billy's older brother and a couple of friends. Rose Markey knew that her daughter would have forgiven Billy for not doing more to help her, and Markey decided that she too could forgive him. 
Now, listeners, we're going to get into the trial of John Kehoe. If you think he's going to be compliant or decent about things, well, I have a surprise for you. On March 19, 1997, John's trial began in Calhoun County. The jury was made up of seven men and seven women, which included alternates. Billy Brown was a prosecution's star witness. He told the court that Kehoe was angry with Rosie, who was his ex-girlfriend, because she was interfering in his new relationships, and she damaged his brother's truck. Remember the incident where she rammed his truck with her van after the party on the Michigan State campus? Yeah, he was mad about that. Billy testified that he did not stop John from killing Rosie because he was in fear of his own life. He thought that if he intervened in the attack that John would kill him as well. John Kehoe took the stand in his own defense. He pointed the finger at Billy, saying Billy wanted to have sex with Rosie, but Rosie wouldn't sleep with him if John was there, so John headed out to a fast food restaurant, and when he returned, Rosie was dead because Billy had strangled her. Billy's brother Daniel also took the stand at trial. He said that Billy called him to say that something had gone wrong and Rosie wasn't coming back. Daniel asked Billy if he was okay, and Billy said that he didn't know. He told his brother if he didn't make it back, Daniel should go to the police and tell them John did something to both him and Rosie. Now, not surprisingly, the defense objected to Daniel's testimony and the prosecution pressed for it to stay in, saying it went to Billy's state of mind the morning of the murder. Specifically, Daniel's statements reflected Billy's emotions, intent, and plans, so the testimony was allowed. While John and his defense team insisted that Kehoe was innocent and that Billy Brown was responsible for the murder of Rose Larner, the jury felt otherwise. On April 11th, John was found guilty of first-degree murder. When the jury read the verdict, John laughed out loud. One month later, on May 12, 1997, John Ortiz Kehoe is sentenced to life in prison without parole. Billy Brown had to take some responsibility for his action or inaction regarding Rosie's death, and on September 25, 1997, Billy was sentenced to one year in jail and four years of probation. At Billy's sentencing, Rose Markey asked the judge to include emotional help for Billy as part of his rehabilitation. Billy's father, Russell, told the Lansing State Journal that he's overwhelmed by Rose Markey's forgiveness. He said, quote, Her strength has been mine. We're learning to live with the knowledge that nothing will ever be the same again. On October 27, 1997, Tim Kehoe pleaded guilty to being an accessory after the fact. He told the judge he cleaned up the fireplace and disposed of the axe that was used to dismember Rosie Larner. Tim Kehoe was sentenced to two to five years in prison. Not surprisingly, John Ortiz Kehoe appealed his sentence on multiple occasions. He took the appeals all the way to the Michigan Supreme Court, and each appeal was denied. Today, Kehoe is 48 years old and resides at the Chippewa Correctional Facility in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. He continues to protest his innocence and uses social media to share his story. Kehoe does this with the support of his girlfriend, Emerald. Kehoe has a Facebook page with just over 500 likes, as well as accounts on Instagram and Twitter. He also has a YouTube channel, a Tumblr account, a podcast, and a book. I'm not quoting or linking to any of them because John Kehoe does not deserve an audience for his bullshit. Sources for this episode include coverage in the Lansing State Journal, court documents, and if you are interested, 
there is an episode of Forensic Files from Season 3 called Out of the Ashes about the murder of Rose Larner. This episode was researched by Haley Gray, production support by Olivia Holmesley, audio editing by Bill Burt. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe. At Granger, we're for the ones who specialize in saving the day and for the ones who've mastered the art of keeping business moving. We offer industrial-grade supplies for every industry, with same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders, all backed by real people ready to help. So you can get the right answers and products right when you need them. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.